the opposite of an echo chamber, I call an idea lab, a free speech culture where everyone's saying what they really think. And no one's afraid to put out bad ideas or put out ideas that, that, that might piss someone else off because everyone's just going to kick the ideas and no one kicks each other. Everyone's going to kick the ideas on the floor and kick them around and see which one works and which ones don't. Um, that is a system that is smart and wise. That system together is smarter than all the individuals in it. The echo chamber is dumber than all the individuals in it. Welcome back, Neurohacker community, to our podcast, where we voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Today, I'd like to introduce a new regular host on our show, Jamie Wheel. He is executive director of the Flow Genome Project and author of the Pulitzer-nominated global bestseller, Stealing Fire. He's an expert on peak performance and leadership, specializing in the neuroscience and application of flow states. Welcome to Collective Insights. You've probably heard of Tim Urban for his super popular web series, Wait But Why, where he does the little stick figures and then explains incredibly complicated things in really fun and engaging ways. And also his top 10 of all time TED Talks on procrastination. Uh, today, we, Tim and I got to dive deep and we had a fun and far-ranging riff on all sorts of subjects, everything from Elon Musk and AI and Fermi's paradox and, and what is the origins of alien life in the world to contemporary politics, freedom of speech, and even the idea of what does it mean to be an intellectual or public intellectual and actually feel called to step out of your lane and to actually stick your neck out and be willing to take a risk on behalf of democracy, on behalf of civil society, and as he described it, on behalf of helping us row like hell and avoid going over the waterfalls ahead. So Tim is funny, he is energetic, he is wide read, widely read and incredibly curious. And beyond all that, has taken the time, has done the kind of hard effort to do what Einstein said, you know, supposedly, which was when he was talking to his wife about one of his theories, like, ah, if, you know, if I, if I can't explain it to a fifth grader, I haven't thought about it enough. And Tim has thought about it enough. And he gets to explain it to all of us, even in that he's goofy comic sans font that, uh, that I think is, I think Wait But Why may be the only approved use of that font on the planet, and Tim makes great use of it. His, his ideas and his insights are profound, uh, but also profoundly accessible. Tim Urban is the founder of the ever popular Wait But Why series of uh, basically stick figure illustration meets deep dives into eternal and timely topics, as well as the co-founder of Arbor Bridge uh, Educational Programming and renowned for being the first person in the history of TED, the Global Speakers Program, to have his talk, his 2016 talk on procrastination actually get to 10 million views within one year. And it now lives in the pantheon of top 10 TED Talks of all time. So in getting to prepare for this time with Tim, I kind of thought I was like, wow, if, if Joe Rogan and Edward Tufte, who's the sort of father of, of graphic illustration, if the two of them got together and had a love child, it might look a little like Tim Urban. So Tim, welcome to Homegrown Humans and fired up to chat. Yes, me too. Thanks for having me on. For sure. So uh, I, I ended up coming across your work, as I imagine many people do, which is sort of accidentally, organically, virally. Uh, in particular, I remember a few of your 
what have now, I think, become some of the early breakouts of Wait But Why, one on, one on relationships, obviously your one on procrastination, and then the ones on AI and Elon Musk. And at the time, I just remember thinking, oh, thank God someone is taking the time to break down complex issues and render them in fun, engaging, uh, and accessible ways. It's kind of the instant thing to forward to a friend or a family member that you wanted to get up to speed on something without slamming a thousand pages in their face. So I, I definitely want to get into some of the things you're up to uh, most recently and that are top of mind for you. But just for folks that have either just been glancingly familiar with Wait But Why and, and, and your body of work, how did you find your way to that as almost a kind of pioneering a new category. I mean, we've got long form Joe Rogan kind of stuff. And then we've got the realm of, you know, instant soundbite, Instagram memes, nine second, 30 second clips, Twitter. So how did you find yourself into this juxtaposition of, and I wouldn't imagine you ever self-identified as an artist, but you've actually rendered the visual as a key element of what you do. And some of your posts are pages and pages long. So what drew you to that? And, 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 and how, did, how did you sort of find that as an incredibly rich niche? Yeah, uh, it, it kind of, um, you know, there wasn't some moment when I said, you know, I have a new kind of um, art form or new kind of uh, article that I think can be great. It wasn't like that. It was like, I had an old blog I blogged on for years just as a side thing. Towards the end of it, I tried just for fun, drawing little stick figure drawing. I'm not, I'm not a, I'm like one of the least talented artists I know. I can't draw anything that looks realistic um, without tracing, but I was like, oh, but I'll, let me draw like funny stick figures to try to make this point. And like I had a smaller readership on that old blog, but people really liked it. So then the next few posts I did that. And that, that was around the time I stopped writing. Um, I just got busy with other stuff and that blog kind of stopped. Uh, then a couple of years later, I wanted to, you know, we were starting a, uh, uh, a new project, Wait But Why, and, and the goal was to make it uh, more than a small blog and to really um, try to, try to, you know, do something bigger. And, um, and the, you know, I, I remembered the stick figures on the old blog and said that was actually kind of a fun tool. It, it like went along well with kind of my tone and my writing. It, it was like it, it enhanced the post. So that was kind of a no brainer to bring those into the new, um, the, the new blog. And then, uh, they didn't start out that long. They started out short. They started out on light topics, you know, and at the time I was like, you know, I don't know who, I didn't feel necessarily qualified to write about something that serious at the time. Um, or it's not that necessarily qualified, but I just like, didn't feel like, uh, uh, people were going to listen to a rando talk about something that's that serious. So I, I started off writing about kind of, you know, trying, you know, headline, uh, you know, click, clickbait, clickbait, headliney, like uh, silly, funny um, post that I thought could kind of back. This is back in 2013 when everything was Facebook. Facebook was like the big, big thing. And I was like, you know, what, what can kind of go viral on Facebook? What can kind of get, you know, cause, and, and, you know, I was anonymous on the blog for a while. Um, and, um, and so it was just kind of like, I, I, I thought that I could do a lot if I had kind of a platform, but just first it's just like, how do I get a platform? So, it was like, um, yeah, just write a bunch of things that might go viral on Facebook um, and use stick figures and just do my style, but like make them a little bit more high quality than the old blog. So that's, that was the beginning. And then from there, um, I, I like, you know, slowly and steadily, the topics got 
deeper and more serious as I started to realize, okay, I'm getting like good feedback from these. Like people want to hear what I have to say about this kind of stuff. Um, and they got a little longer. Um, I, at the beginning in my head, I said, you know, 2000 words is the limit. No one's going to read. You know, I had this thing in my head that a lot of people have in their head. This is what conventional wisdom says right now is that no one reads long articles. You know, two, uh, 2000 words was already a lot. It better be good. if It's going to be 2000. And then, you know, I had one that was like, uh, this one maybe went to 3000. People still liked it. Then I wrote one on um, the Fermi paradox. It was my longest article yet. It was like four, 4,500 or something words. And I was like, eh. and I remember thinking, I was like, this is kind of like, this is a topic that I love, but it's not going to be like, this isn't for most people. Um, it's very like nerdy and specific and it's a Tim <laughs> topic. And, I, I, and it's long blog posts and there's not that many drawings. So th this one isn't going to be a big post. This will be a little one for people who really like this. And it, I was totally wrong. Like it, people love that post. It really like... Um, helped bring a lot of new people into input why. And so at that point I started saying, okay, uh, I, there's a lot more people like me out there. And I, I would read like a long thing that if it was done kind of in a funny, fun way about a topic that I, so I started just kind of going for it and doing whatever I wanted to do. Um, and that sometimes took posts really long and I just followed my curiosity at that point and, um, um, still doing that, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's it turns out that you know long posts can be read. Um, they uh, they just have to grab people and be kind of um, in, you know fun to read, interesting, or on a topic that people are dying to learn more about. Um, uh, you know, it, it, but uh, but people will people will if if they learn to trust you as a writer. I think you know it helps to build up that trust first, maybe with some stuff that's not so long. Once people trust you, they they say, okay, well, if, you know, if this guy wrote a long thing, I'm sure it's worth reading because. I, 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 I know how he thinks from other stuff. And so I think I, having, you know, built up some trust um, really helped. And, and it, it, I feel very lucky to be able to be in a position where I, there's enough people I can kind of write what I want. I can write a really long, like almost book length thing. And I know that people will read it. Um, that's really fun. It makes it really fun to write stuff. So I, I'm, yeah, I feel very, very fortunate. Yeah. And so to, to talk about that, you mentioned early on, like I didn't, think that some rando, you know, aka someone without PhD or credentials or academic affiliation could actually hold forth on the topic. Um, something I found fascinating, especially in your, your essay, I mean, it's one thing to talk about Fermi or AI, and you kind of just get to distill a very robust field, right? But when you were writing on relationships, and you were talking about the different characters and personality types and married or unmarried, and whether how happy different people are and those kind of things. I, I was very, I was very attuned. I'm like, oh wait, where's the authorial voice here, right? It's essentially how much are you go, are you sharing or holding forth from your own lived experience? And there's and, and there's different places where you could have come. You could have said, I've been through the ringer, friends and neighbors, and I'm here to you know tell sh share with you my story. There's that kind of self-disclosing narrative. There's the I'm Esther Perel, and I've and I've had you know thousands of clients in my office, and I'm going to distill my professional insights, and then. You, I think, navigated something that's fairly rare, where you were creating original formulations. You were also adding in research, you know, third-party objective research, and then, and it was very human, but there was nothing about your own life and experiences. So, and I just found that to be a really, fat, I mean, I'm always struggling with that same thing, which is what do I need to put in someone else's mouth versus what is something I think and believe? What will a reader give me permission 
to talk about versus not, where they say, hey, that's a bridge too far. And I'm just curious as to how you found that, because on the one hand, the stick figures are about as, you know, every man humanizing as possible. And, and there's a degree of vulnerability and humanity of the author, right? I'm just drawing stick figures, right? Very approachable. And you also do a great job of quite rigorous, you know, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but a very helpful way, a reader's digest of, you know, of statistics, analysis, larger reports. How, how have you found that as far as, is that just the natural place your authorial voice has, has settled? Do you find yourself ever yearning to speak from your heart more forthrightly or asked to by readers or called out if you cross those lines? What, what's, what's that kind of threading that, that sort of no man's land of who am I and why am I saying the things I'm saying? How, how, how do you navigate that? Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I kind of think of there's, there's kind of a, two categories um, <clears throat> and uh, of posts for me, there's, there's stuff that um, is my own life observations, stuff that I think about, whether it's about my psychology and, uh, or about um, stuff like friendships or relationships or, you know, awkward social moments or whatever. <laughs> and then there's, and then there's stuff where I'm like, as you said at the beginning, kind of distilling like something. Um, so the, so the, the, the latter takes a ton of research. Uh, I read and read and, and my goal is to kind of get myself. I always think of knowledge as like a one through 10. Uh, 10 is the world's leading expert, you know, PhDs have nines and, you know, down to one, one has never heard of the topic. So I started a lot of these that are two or three, you know, I, I know a little bit about it. I've heard about it, but I'm not like a junkie on it. Um, and, uh, and I try to get myself in my research to like a six. So it's this very specific niche, which is like get myself to a six and then try to bring my readers up to a six with me. Or maybe if I have to get to a six, bring my readers up to a five. Because I think to, to, to get people to a five, you should be in a six because I, I, whatever it is. So, so something like that. And, um, and I find that it probably takes about 100 times longer to get to a nine than it does to get to a six. <laughs> right? The goal is never to pretend to be something I'm not. not never pretend to be an expert on something I'm not. Um, uh, so very openly to basically be uh, the, the way I think about it is um, if I just read about something for three straight weeks, just became obsessed with the topic and just, just, just dug in and dug in and, you know, read a few books and read through some journal articles and read a bunch of articles on it and listened to some podcasts on it and um, thought and thought and brainstormed. And you know, what's the real deal with this topic? If I did that and then I had dinner with five or six of my friends and I was like, and I was like, oh, listen, so listen to this. Let me, let me tell you about this topic. And I was telling them about it and they were really interested in the topic and they started asking questions and I could answer most of the questions. Um, that's what I'm going for. So um, I can, if I have spent three weeks reading about something new, uh, I have a lot to offer those five or six interested, curious friends, right? I've, I, I can answer, I could, if they really wanted to dig in, I could answer two hours of questions of theirs. And I really, because I really understand it now. I understand what we think. I understand the different points of view. Uh, where there's consensus, where there's not. I, I start to understand the background and how it really works. That's enough to really, you know, do a Q&A with layman, which is, you know, a layman that I was three weeks earlier. I could go back to that person and now do a Q&A with a hundred of him three weeks later. Um, I can do, you know, I can do that. So that's where I want to be. And I, and I, um, that said, if someone said, well, you want to be on a panel of experts talking about like, uh, 
the, the, the newest ideas in this? I, I would probably say no. I'd say, unless you want someone who's, who um, can sum up what other experts say, great. But if you want an original expert who's actually done the original research in here, I would, I, I'm not on that level, right? But for what most people want, at least, at least kind of the people like me, curious people who, they don't necessarily want to spend two years digging in and getting to be an expert. They want to spend a couple hours one day learning a lot more about something and getting oriented. I can do that. I can actually provide that with only three or three weeks, maybe six weeks, maybe sometimes one week of um, research. So that's this topic, right? That's this kind of post. Then on the other side, the observation. Again, I think kind of about friends. Um, I, I think there's so many people in the world on the internet that if you just start kind of doing your thing, the people who you're kind of friends with, who are kind of like you, who kind of think the same way, the same, same sense of humor, the same kind of curiosity, um, they're going to find you. And so I, I consider my readers to be an extension of my group of friends, basically. It's the kind of people that if I knew them, I'd probably be friends with them. Um, and so that makes it kind of easy because I don't have to worry about am I qualified to tell my, if I, if, again, if I'm at dinner with some friends and I have a theory on relationships I've been thinking about. I don't have to be, you know, I don't have to say, oh, well, I don't have a PhD in this. I haven't interviewed thousands of people, so I'm not going to say this with my friend. No, I would just be like, hey, so here's what do you think about this? And again, it's, it's just not pretending to be something you're not. So relationships, it's one of the most important topics for everyone, right? Yeah. Whether it's friendships or, 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 or marriages or um, whatever. Uh, and I think about it constantly, right? It's just, you know, I spent my whole 20s, you know, and, and a lot of my teens thinking, you know, what matters? This is such a big thing. And then, you know, getting married to someone probably like, what matters there? Or just for, you know, if I have a girlfriend, like what? What makes that a good relationship versus bad? It's something that my friends and I talk about all the time, both female friends and male friends. We always talk about, um, you know, I have two sisters. We talk about it all the time, right? It's just an interesting topic. It's such an important thing. And so um, that's the kind of thing that I'm always developing my own theories about. You know, in college, I remember talking to my friends. Um, uh, there's two friends and I were, you know, we, 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 we talk about this a lot. And I remember presenting them one of, you know, one of my latest theories, which is like, you need, okay, there's three things that actually matter in a uh, relationship. Um, and if you hit those three, you're good, but you gotta have, you got you really wanna have all those three if you can. First one is attraction, you know, which is some kind of like, that's a bigger bucket. It's not just sexual attraction, but it's also um, a crush. You have a crush on them. It's not just a friend. Like they tickle you, 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 you get, you know, butterflies just, you know, they, that is at the beginning, you know, obviously that's hard to keep that whole thing going forever, but like, it's something more than like you're a normal platonic, you know, female friend of mine. It's like, no, no, this is like, ah, that person gets me excited. Okay. Then the second thing is um, they have to be actually like a really close friend. They, you, you can't like hanging with your friends more than you like hanging with them. You can't, you know, obviously it, it, you can't just have the, you know, the, the, the crush and the attractions, you know, and the physical stuff be the reason that you like being with them. So in other words, if as much as I like talking on the phone to a friend when there's no physical possibility, I have to like talking to them as much or more, probably ideally even more. Like they're one of my favorite just friends to to just chat with. So that's really important. And then the third thing is like um, deep trust, like a deep, just like you just think they're like a deep down, a really good person that, that like um, you feel very like safe with and you just have, complete confidence that they're like not going to like do anything really bad to you. Right. So um, if you have those three things, I was like, everything's every, nothing else matters. Right. It's like you, you won, you won. Right. So 
you know, I'm not saying anything groundbreaking here. This is stuff I'm sure a lot of people have had that exact same thought, right? But it's just the categories, you know, makes it like a, <laughs> a, way, a, a framework, a framework, right? And so oh, yeah. I, what I started realizing when I think at the beginning, I would have said, no one wants to hear my little random theory. And as I started writing, I realized that's not true because my friends wanted to hear that. They might disagree, but it's a great conversation. that They'd say, no, actually, I think you have it wrong. I think or we, then we'd say, well, which one of these three could you is a deal breaker if it's not that, you know, so we'd get into a conversation. And I, I started to realize that my blog was a big, huge dinner table of my friends. Um, so I can uh, I can write that theory and I can let people comment on it and people will agree and disagree and we'll all have fun. And um, and that that's a really fun thing on the Internet to have for someone. So. That it was kind of this slow process of realizing, like, it's okay to just be me and not have to not pretend to be anything else. And, like, there's something that people want there. Um, now, the relationships, when you said, is some kind of hybrid of these two, where actually did involve research as well. Because I thought, you know, I thought I have all these thoughts about this, but why, you know, it's just, oh, it, it wasn't even the plan. It's just that as I started thinking about it, I was reading articles about it. I just like to kind of read about, you know, read some ideas that are, that are out there to try to, like, help fill in my own ideas. And, um, I started coming across some really interesting research, especially on um, Eric Barker's blog, Barking Up the Wrong Tree for that post. You know, he's he's a friend of mine. And also, I you know, before he was a friend, I was a huge fan of his blog. And I was, um, I, he has so many good things on relationships. And he distills, you know, he really does the Reader's Digest. He takes all this re these books and he distills it and with bold, bold lines into here's the real deal. And so I, I had a little bit of a knowledge because of that. So I said, let me bring some of his stuff uh, into this. And that's just what it happened for that post. You know, every post is its own, you know, kind of unique thing. So yeah, that's kind of my thinking is, as I, is, um, as I go, I, I, uh, I see the feedback cause I have a big comment section. I get emails. So I see feedback and that starts to tell me what, uh, what's working and what's not. And then I evolve from there. So, so I'm, I'm just going to ask you a question about, um, the market side of it, if it's okay, and we can we can just have this conversation. I'm super curious about this. If this is in any way not what you'd like to talk about on on screen, we can just whack it. Um, but but this is super curious to me. So, um, you know, you mentioned talking about the, you know that you that the audience for wait but why is kind of an extend ex, extension of your friend circle or a sort of really vibrant dinner party, and you mentioned that back in the beginning, back in 2013, you were kind of like, hey, how can I you know, choose topics, write things that work on Facebook, that can grow, can have a big audience, that kind of stuff. And, and you talked about how you've just been choosing to follow your interests and passions, which is this beautifully, you know, kind of pure, intuitive pursuit of just your love of learning shared. And at the same time, you know, if you look around the, whatever you would call it, I suppose, the realm of ideas, the conversations and public thought these days, at, you know, everybody's got some different way of making it, of supporting the platform and growing. So, you know, you have people who do podcasts and then they sell trainings and workshops or they sell supplements and they reinvest that money into building a community or a culture or research. You've had Sam Harris um, and Tim Ferriss have both very publicly and transparently with their audience, audiences played with well, do we have ads on our podcast or do we actually charge for membership and have gated content and which works well in which ways? And then, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, um, Jordan Peterson going on to Patreon. You know, there's now Substack for subscriptions to newsletters. So what is the what is the way what lessons have you learned or found along the way as far as how do you both make this something other than just a bottomless pit of time and charity 
um, make it self-sustaining and something that can support you in the world and your livelihood um, and preserves your intellectual freedom and curiosity to move forward. Because I feel like that's a that's a sort of conversation that everyone is trying to innovate on themselves. Um, but I don't know if we're necessarily having it all together, which is, you know, the Medici sponsored the artist in the Renaissance, right? Where every, everybody's coming up with transitional patchworks from tenure at a university, or I get, you know, seven figure book deals every couple of years to how do we, how do we support the ecology of this kind of public, public sphere? What, what have you noticed? What have you been learning for yourself? Yeah, um, I think that it depends on the size of the platform. The bigger the platform, the, the kind of easier it is to not have to center your content and what you're, what you're thinking and what you're doing around revenue. Um, so, um, you know, if you have 10,000 um, passionate readers, right, of something, that's that's um, that's plenty to support a career, but you have to be selling something you know legit to them. Um, you know maybe you're selling them you know you're selling them um, courses um, or you're um, or you are um, uh, you know you're selling them merchandise or you maybe you're charging an annual subscription fee. Something where, you know, I don't know, a thousand people can be paying a hundred bucks a year. So 10, 10th of your readers are paying a hundred dollars a year. Um, but you have to really, you know, you, that's not going to happen by itself, right? You're going to have to push that and, and talk about that and really, you know, build something that's going to turn into that, um, that, that revenue. Cause you know, you know, just right away, even if just say you, you are doing a, a thousand people paying a hundred bucks a year, okay. A hundred thousand, that sounds great, except. The, usually the platform itself costs a significant, you know, you know, just all the, there's upkeep of your, whatever you're doing and your equipment and your MailChimp and your, um, your, your, your hosting and it, it adds up. So, you know, it's, 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 you know, it might still be a tight living, but you can, you can pull it off. Now, if you have a hundred thousand readers, different, different game now, you know, you need, um, you need fewer dollars from them and you need fewer people, few, a smaller percentage of them to, to give, you know, and I mean, that gets up to a million readers um, someone like Tim Ferriss probably has 10 million readers, you know, or, 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 or viewers. Once you get to the, this level, now something like Patreon starts to be really fine because if 1% of your readers gets five bucks a year, uh, you know, you suddenly you're, you're, you're doing great, right? So I, I think it depends on the size. Um, I think Weibo Wise is you know, somewhere in the middle there where um, is, I think, you know, we, we now have um, 600,000 email subscribers, you know, so those are people who really like the blog and um, that's been, um, that's enough where Patreon for us is a bit, really big deal. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not this little extra supplement, but it's a really big deal. It, it, it really is the reason we can have, um, a full-time employee and uh, like make the whole site, everything just, everything moves faster and, 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 uh, more efficiently and higher quality because she's here. Right. And it just frees up a huge amount of my time and. So it, you know, when you're one when you're a one-person company, because you know, my the co-founder Andrew, he works on our other company. Um, when when you're a one-person company, hiring one full-time employee is a complete game changer. So is the reason we can do that. Because um, again, you know, Mailchimp and hosting and it was the different tweaks on the site, and um, it adds up pretty quickly um, to where you know you need a so so our Patreon is is uh, is a big deal for us, and then we sell sell stuff in our store. 
um, which is which is you know again when, when there's enough people, you, you you can just put that out there. You don't have to be pushing it too much, and it will add up to something. So Waypoint Y is not a huge money maker, but our goal for it is basically that it breaks even um, and or a little bit better. Um, so that we can just keep this going, um, you know. Maybe, maybe one day we'll, you know, Sam has um, a meditation app that you know, I think does great. You know, one day, you know, it's not it's not our top priority. One day, I could see if there's an idea that we have that happens to make money, that but but it's something that really fits with the brand and fits with the, what we want to be doing, and and it, it and it's something I would I would I, I would be I think like readers would be really really excited to actually have. Then then maybe we'll do that, and maybe Wapawai can can. But at the moment, you know, it's just not it's not where our heads are. It's um. It, the goal is, um, the goal is to make it sustainable, long-term sustainable. So it's something I can do, and I, I don't ever, ever want to be doing, uh, thinking, having my creative ideas uh, be kind of invaded by. But 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 we have to make money off this, and that's a luxury. I don't think that I don't think it's like oh everyone should think that way. No, like I I feel very lucky that we have enough people that Patreon plus a store and stuff. It means I can I don't have to be thinking. Um, too hard about that. I can pick topics that I want to do, regardless of whether there's any possibility for, you know, for revenue. Um, so stuff like that. Um, you know, we just made an app. I made an app with um, uh, the, the YouTube channel, and they're in the same position. I think that your commitment to the clarity and, and in some respects, the sort of the purity or integrity of what you're doing for the joy of it, for the love of it, for your curiosity bleeds through. And then that's the paradox, right? It's precisely that which is magnetic to others um, because it doesn't feel transactional. It doesn't feel in any way salesy. And I think, you know, Tim Ferriss was able to do that because he nailed it very successfully in his Silicon Valley tech investment. So his podcast series is truly a labor of love for him. Sam has done something similar. Um, and the ability to be above the fray is, I think, a huge part of what um, proves so appealing is that you're sharing things for the you know for the love of love of the ideas themselves and the joy of dis your discovery and, and sharing it. Um, and I'm I, I can't help but ask because there's there's an old saying that like where you always fight your first martial art. You know like even if you learn subsequent different ones, that kind of that one that set you is kind of how your muscle memory is. And, and you know, in your undergraduate experience at Harvard, what what discipline were you in, and what? professors particularly landed for you or shaped the way you've become this kind of curious polymath? Uh, I mean, if I could go back to college, um, uh, I would do, um, I probably would take like a bunch of intro classes only because <laughs> those were the most fun for me. Like Psych 101 was so interesting. I took like an, you know, a 101 kind of, um, astronomy class, uh, uh, human behavioral biology. These were kind of electives, but they were the most interesting. And then I majored in government, which was fine, but it bored me and I had to write a lot of papers and I don't really know why I did that. I mean, uh, the truth is for the first time now, I'm writing this this longer series, it's actually for the first time, I'm like, yeah, that actually I'm, I'm using some of what I learned there. But um, what I, if, if I could go back, I would just have followed my curiosity and just had like a, because all good things happen when you are lit up by learning, when something is super fun that you're learning, like you just, it's almost, it's rare in life that that's not gonna lead you somewhere good, I think, um, no, matter, no matter what, you know, no matter what you're doing. So um, I think at the time I felt like I should do like a more, you know, I don't know, um, but, but also just the idea of majors, like 
I feel like it's, uh, you know, some people are going to college to get a skill or a, a body of knowledge uh, that is going to be important for their career. And that's great. It's great, efficient use of college. You come out at 22, you're already kind of, you know, hitting the ground running, um, almost treating it like a grad school and the college at the same time. Uh, and then a lot of Americans, though, they're not even majoring in something they plan to do. They major in history and they want to be a lawyer or something, you know, I mean, you know, people this all the time. And, um, and that's great, I think. But the, I think that, I don't know why they force you to major. You should be able to basically, if you're not, if, you, if, you, if you're not trying to become kind of a getting almost like a grad school degree in college, why not allow you, the people just to take whatever they want? So I don't really get it. So I had to major, which means half my classes had to be in one discipline. Anyway, um, I think for me, you know, to answer your question, uh, I think, um, I don't think I'm any more of like a, a polymath than any of my good friends. You know, any people, people that are really curious, they just learn about stuff. They, they listen to different podcasts on stuff. They're always talking about stuff. They, they, you know, it doesn't have to come from classes. They're just constant learners. They're always learning. And then they, then you talk to your friend and they're learning something. They recommend something and um, you end up, you know, with a decently well-rounded, you know, basic understanding of a lot of things. Um, and then for me, you know, that's, I'll, I'll, I'll take that as a foundation. And then when I, when I want to write about something, I'll go a little bit deeper onto a specific topic there, but then I can jump around because if I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, there are people like they, there, there are da Vinci's out there that are true, like world-class experts on many different things. And that's, you know, someone like, um, uh, uh, blanking, um, on his name, marginal revolution, um, uh, no, sorry, I gotta. This is this is uh, uh, blanking. It's just worth getting his name. Um, I have my dad's thing where I can't remember uh, names anymore. It's like it's really an annoying thing. <laughs> I, um, I find I find it's like if you send the little hamster wheel uh, of your mind down to the basement, he finds it. It's just three to five minutes later. You just have to kind of let him run. You know? Yeah, I, I, I like the perfect recall of most things, and then names. I'm just uh, Tyler Cowen. Tyler Cowen is an example, or uh, Anders Sandberg, or Daniel Schmachtenberger, who you know, like the, some people are truly like, they could be on a panel of experts on 10 different topics. That's really rare. Or Steven Pinker, you know, John Haidt. Some of these people are really like crazy in what they know. Uh, that's not even really my goal. Like, it just sounds really hard. I don't really want to, whatever, th these are lifelong academics. Like, I don't really want to do that. You know, I'd rather be someone that can, have an, in, have an intelligent conversation about a lot of things uh, uh, without having to go be an expert and then can dig in further to anyone and, and really know enough, you know, and, and especially because the foundation of a well-rounded foundation of knowledge helps you with any topic because you can just see the connections and you can see patterns. That, that's, that's what, I mean, that's what's fun for me. And so I just don't see any reason not to just do what's fun. I think that's, I think some people it is truly fun to become a nine out of 10 on many topics. They're just obsessive, deep learners. I, I think it's, again, a little like college. I'd rather take a bunch of 101 classes. I think in life, I kind of want to do the same. I want, I want breadth. And I think breadth is really great because you can start to, the more you, you know, you start to see connections, as I said. So I think breadth can really build this kind of deeper understanding of everything in a way. Um, so... And so yeah. sort of the, the Pareto principle of discovery, which is that first 20% of learning, especially if you get kick-ass, you know, resources to draw from is 80% of the fun. And then you've got the 80% right. of the effort and the work to, to get your guild credential. Um, yeah. but, but a lot of times the joy is gone. So 
this is interesting because you, you've, you've been not only describing, but I think modeling in the enthusiasm of, of your, your conversation, your passion and joy for being a, an intentional jack of all trades. Like, let's go broad. Let's really pursue where things are most alive. And actually, that's completely congruent, like Maria Montessori's theory of childhood education, the idea that we go through sensitive stages. And when we're in a given sensitive stage, if it's for quantum physics or bridge building or bird watching or dinosaurs, then we will absorb it, suck the marrow out of it, and then we're complete for, the, for a time period until we move to the next thing. Um, and that you've also talked about, and you've alluded a couple of times to this most recent project, which I'm, is that the story of us that you're yes. referring to? Yeah, and, and in the preface to that, Right. You you kind of said you're like, hey, um, it's probably safer and generally more fun for everyone for me to be writing about Fermi paradox, AI, the funny things we do in relationships. You know, it's a little bit of the third rail to grab onto and start talking about sociopolitical things. Uh, and there was even there was even one of your posts where you had to sort of I'm imagining because I, I didn't see the comments that prompted it, but I'm imagining you were like, hey, What's the gender of my stick figures? What's the ethnicity of my stick figures? What do I call them with my pronoun selection? And yeah, that, these... that, that, that was fun. That was a lot of fun for everyone, the reaction to that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is which I would imagine landed somewhere in the damned if you do, damned if you don't category. Very much, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, so, so let's talk about this. So you've been talking about fun, playful exploration, and then this story of us, for folks that haven't come across it, is it's at least been all of 2020, right? It's been oh, yeah. Yeah. Started at the end of 2019. Yeah. Yeah. And, and starting to lean into discussing, you know, clear and present dangers, discussing how we got to fractured society, bringing back on maybe some of your, your poli sci perspectives and Jonathan Haidt, the, the, that whole discussion. So what for you felt that you needed to felt that that was the next inevitable step? And what has that been like to go from the somewhat abstract forever wonderings of, of your other more playful, you know, accessible topics into things that are quite charged right now. Why'd you do it? And how is and, and are you glad you did? And, and how has that ride been so far? So I, I, I did it specifically, I actually don't find this to be my favorite topic. And it's certainly not great for my career. I'm definitely losing some readers writing about it. it's a, it's a religious topic for a lot of people politics. Um, and no matter what you say, you're going to commit blasphemy against some people. Now, I don't think my typical reader is like that. That's, you know, again, I'm, I, I think I'm attracting with my type of writing, the type of people that, that are open. Um, they're, um, they like open disagreement. They, my comment section is, I've never had a comment section where some people aren't telling me I'm wrong, but they're doing it in this grown up way, which I love. Like it's, yeah. to me, the, mo they are the most interesting comment section is one with a ton of different opinions. And everyone's being a grown-up about it, and no, you know, everyone is being respectful and asking questions, and and uh, you know, no, no one's getting personal. So I think I th those people, that type of person, very rarely is religious about politics. They're like politics; they're about politics like they are about everything else. They like to discuss, disagree respectfully. Uh, they they treat it like a set of ideas, not like um, their identity um, or their tribe, right? And so. Um, but that said, it all it takes is 5%, 10% of readers to be religious about it to have, because those people are, you know, if, if you are committing blasphemy, they're going to comment. So then you'll have a, a, you know, a, a really, you know, you'll, you'll have uh, even just 10 people who are livid with what you just said will just completely change the tone of a comment section. And um, 
And uh, so it, I knew I was, I knew what I was getting into. You know, this is, <laughs> um, there's no surprises here. The reason I did it is because specifically it's like this meta thing. I did it because the reaction I knew I was going to get is the problem. So you mentioned like it's the third rail. Um, for politics, for, for like how we should run our societies and what's right and wrong, good and bad in our society moving forward into a really unpredictable future. For that to be a third rail is like we're all on a boat and it is headed either towards a waterfall down to our deaths or towards this beautiful meadow. And there's a, there's a, it's, it is foggy and there's a fork somewhere ahead. And we, we, if, we go, if, we, if we drift kind of the wrong way, we end up going down the waterfall. We won't even see it coming. And if we go the right way, it'll, and imagine if, so, if someone said, but whatever you do, don't talk about the river. Don't talk about the fog. Don't talk about rowing. It's the third rail, right? You can uh, talk about anything else, but just the, it's the third rail to discuss what we should be doing and why and what's going right and wrong on this boat and how and whether the boat is made well right now and how we fix the leaks in the boat. That's the third rail. Talk about other stuff. Talk about fun things, you know, but just don't mention when the boat's like, no. The, the thing we for sure have to talk about is the boat and where we're going right now. Like our society, like, you know, this is a really big deal. So it's the worst possible thing to be the third rail. And, um, you know, it's, if, if, if we get religious about religion and suddenly we get hit this age when suddenly no one can talk about Christianity or Islam or anything without, you know, or atheism without, you know, it's like, I actually think we've come out of an age like that. I think now it's almost kind of fine to talk about, you know, openly say you're an atheist and no one cares to openly say you're Christian. You know, some people, um, we'll get in, you know, we'll, we'll be difficult about that, but basically like you can kind of, I think religious wise, at least in like the, the, the wait, but why world the kind of people I can write up, I can say, I can make fun of religion. I can make fun of atheism and it's going to go over fine. I know this from experience, write about politics, make fun of the left, make fun of the right. It's going to be nasty. Um, now, um, so, uh, so I think if we're religious about religion, it's fine because it's not gonna, it's not affecting necessarily, unless there's some kind of religious war, it's not affecting where the boat's going. But politics and, our, and just discussing society and right and wrong and policies and our culture and what we should be allowed to say or not and, and, uh, is, is the worst possible thing. So free speech, I'm, you know, I've become basically a free speech zealot. It's like the one thing it's good to be a zealot about, um, which is just like, we, we, we have to, that, that, you know, free speech, in a society, that's not just the First Amendment because we have that already. It's this, it's this culture of free speech. That's the second piece of the puzzle. First Amendment plus a culture of free speech equals free speech. First, you know, First Amendment plus a culture where you, you know, what you say can get your head bitten off. No free speech. Might as, might as well not have a First Amendment, right? It's, it's well, not well, doing so, so, so talk to me about that. So I think what was it three, four months ago? Maybe I've kind of lost track of quarantine time, but but there was a period, maybe middle summer or beginning of the summer, where there was a hundred and fifty signatories in that letter. I think it was to Hoffer's Weekly. Yeah, and and it was thought leaders, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and and John McWhorter from Columbia, and I think Stephen Pinker was in there as well as other writers, Salman Rushdie, et cetera. And it was just kind of basically saying you know, in slightly more formal terms, what you've just described. And then they just got pilloried, you know, on Twitter and in the thinkosphere of being entitled and having platforms and wringing their hands that they deserve to be canceled anyway, that kind of a, of a conversation. Um, did that, A, were, you know, were you tracking that? Does that happen? Do you have some thoughts on it? Or, you know, or just that general idea that at this point, even sticking your head above the ramparts and saying, hey, I think we should all get along 
<laughs> you know, is sort of subject to getting shot from both sides these days. Like what, what I like the idea even of things like, hey, we should have a global coordinated response to a pandemic or hey, every vote should count in a democracy. Things that I would have thought up until the last year or three would have been uncontestably clear middle ground are now still being volatile and still sort of somehow signifying to, you know, factions that you're not on their side, so you must be against them. I mean, what, what are you noticing in, in, in that space, the erosion of the moderate middle of civil consensus? Yeah. Um, so the reason I'm a zealot with free speech mm-hmm. is because when you give an inch, when you start saying, okay, uh, really offensive speech, hate speech, is not allowed. You've broken the system and here's why. Because ask an evangelical Christian or uh, uh, ask a uh, conservative Muslim or ask a, um, uh, a you know, a San Francisco atheist. Um, ask them what's offensive, what's hate speech, and they have three very different answers. So what you're really saying when you say hate speech is not allowed is what you're saying is whoever is in the, the most, and again, not, not First Amendment wise, that's a different discussion because that also, you know, there's some infringements actually legally, but just culturally, when you say that, you know, one thing as a society we're not going to permit is hate speech. Um, what you're really saying is whoever has the most cultural power, their definition of hate speech is no longer allowed. Um, you know, pro-choice, Pro-choice, being be, talking about the the case for abortion is hate speech to a hardcore pro-lifer, right? It is. It is. You're talking about, you know, to them they would say you're 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 talking about why it's okay to kill babies. That is should never be allowed. Even to, you know, you should be you're, you should be fired from your job for mentioning it, right? So, so that's what they might say. The reason that uh, if 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 you've made the rule that hate speech is not okay, then all it takes is for those people to get a little more cultural power. Maybe in 10 years, there's a wave of, of, of cultural, for some reason, the cultural power there. And suddenly no one can say anything about pro-choice anymore. Um, on the other hand, you could say that hate speech is saying, uh, you know, disagreeing that affirmative action is an effective policy. Most people don't think that's hate speech, but one group certainly does. And what it's saying is if they're in cultural power, now if you say anything about affirmative action, you're gonna have your, your career ruined, right? So the reason it's bad is because what you're doing is you're, you're, you're handing, when you, when you say hate speech isn't allowed or offensive stuff should be, is, is, it's okay to, to censor that. What you're really saying is whoever this most cultural, you know, powerful group is, you can play speech arbiter for now. And then when someone else becomes the most culturally powerful group, wherever they are, they can play speech arbiter. And what happens inevitably is that the, once you give that power to this group, the definition of what's hate speech and what's offensive starts to drift and drift and drift until it's anything that disagrees with their kind of sacred dogma. Because the kind of people that like to disagree and the kind of people that like to be open, they don't want to censor anyone in the first place. So the kind of people that are doing this, that are censoring this, they're the kind of people that would that l- they have an authoritarian impulse. They like to, um, they like to, to, they would like, they would like to censor things that they don't agree with if they could and when you when you get that inch free speech you are now allowing that group whoever it is to do that and they will and they'll do more and more until suddenly we're in a religious society where you can't commit blasphemy against this one bible you know every every one of these groups has their own bible quran whatever um this group's bible this is the one that's the law of the land now 
culturally and, and no one can violate can commit blasphemy against this group because they're because they run the tv stations and they run silicon valley and they run academia and they run the mainstream media and whoever whoever is those whoever those people happen to be uh um, they make the laws and then maybe those people, you know, maybe this y younger people at those companies start to have enough power that they scare the older people uh, into um, kind of um, handing over the control of what's allowed to, you know, and very quickly this just gets nasty. Look at so many examples in history. So you got to be a free speech zealot. And, and it's the, the reason that, and, and it's like, okay, well, why is censorship so bad? You know, why is it, why, okay, maybe we should, you know, the reason it's so bad other than the fact that it's a violation of freedom, right? If 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 um, pro-lifers got a lot of power, and suddenly like we were in a lot, we had to talk about pro-choice stuff in in private, you know, obviously that's a violation of freedom. It's not what the, a place like the U.S. is supposed to be about. But the reason it's so bad is that free, a society is like no one human in society uh, knows that much. No one human knows how to build a skyscraper. No, you know, there's that famous thing. No one human even knows how to make a pencil. There's so many different people and industries involved, right? So, yeah. So I, I actually um, actually use that. I use that as an example in, in my next book. Not, not I, pencil, oh, it's, I, I, I love it. I, I think it's, you know, this is the, it's, uh, we, we are smart collectively. Collectively, mm -hmm. we can figure stuff out. There's a wisdom we have when collectively. Now, but I think it's interesting because when the collective is forced into a, to kind of abide by a certain dogma, which we call an echo chamber. An echo chamber is a group of people who, um, their speech has been restricted to the to to a certain Bible of whatever kind. When you have that, the collective becomes dumber than an average human. The collective becomes a very I, I think of it as like a big dumb giant that uh, is 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 just pushing this one religion, yeah. whatever religion yeah. or whatever it is. On the other hand, the opposite of an echo chamber I call an idea lab, a free speech culture, where everyone's saying what they really think, and no one's afraid to put out bad ideas or put out ideas that 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 might piss someone else off because everyone's just gonna kick the ideas and no one kicks each other. Everyone's going to kick the ideas on the floor and kick them around and see which one works and which ones don't. Um, that is a system that is smart and wise. That system together is smarter than all the individuals in it. The echo chamber is dumber than all well, the individuals. Well, let's let's talk about that for a second, right? Because I, I don't think it, it doesn't take three demographers to realize we're going nose diving away from smart, smart idea labs into kind of Hulk smash warring versions of groupthink. And you, and you mentioned you know, the, the, the sort of highly dysfunctional echo chambers. And the echo chambers, only, it's not even one monolithic. It's at least a couple of highly fractious, tendentious, tribal ones. And you mentioned authoritarianism, the idea that like, I hold the will and desire to assert our unilateral you know, value systems onto others. And I don't know if you saw that, uh, I think it was University of Melbourne, uh, maybe sometime in the last uh, 12 weeks just released a study on US, I think they did 500 sample size of people with non-centrist positions. So alt-right, white identitarians, uh, progressive liberal, and then authoritarian liberal, or kind of what might be known as the sort of social justice movement. And they did psychographic assessment and found that none of the folks in the middle, regardless of their perspectives, they still held, those folks all held out the idea of like, I might hold my beliefs sacrosanct, but I also preserve the right for others to have their own different beliefs. But both far left and far right scored off the charts on authoritarianism, Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy. And, and so that idea that you're like, oh, wow, um, 
And to your point where you said there's lots of examples through history, right? I think it, it, it's critical for folks on both sides to realize it's not just Nazis, you know, far right folks, Aryan nation kind of folks that can be scary. There is also, you know, Robespierre and the French Revolution, right? I mean, liberty, equality, brotherhood, that was a pretty groovy set of humanitarian values, right? And Robespierre just tacked to the left, tacked to the left, and was clearly not a good egg. So, um, you know, at least in some respects, it feels to me, and I'm, I'm curious if this lands or tracks with you know, the way you've been thinking about the, the echo chambers and the idea labs, is that it's less about right and left right now than it is about people of all political persuasions who are committed to the sort of the infinite game, that kind of James Koss idea, the enlightenment experiment, American democracy, you know, I, I, I detest what you say, but defend your right to say it, that, that neck of the woods, like we commit to the game above either of our preferred outcomes versus finite gamers on either side that are like smash and grab and take everything for, for the winning team, for, for our people. And the other does not deserve a handshake at the end, you know? And so to me, which you talked about the boat sailing off, you know, Niagara Falls, that's the one that feels to me like that's the meta above all the chatter of what's going on right now is are we still committed to the infinite game? You know, win or lose, we value that as sacrosanct. Or are we looking to dismantle the civil society and just grab what's ours for our for our tribe? Does that does that track for you? Yeah. Well, so the uh, the thing I think we need, which is the core of my whole series, um, which is going to be a book, and it's the core of the whole. Book. Oh, nice. Because I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. 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 Um, is we need uh, a, a a vertical axis. So we have a horizontal axis, right, left, center. And a lot of times when people are trying to make a point, they're saying center, but center is just another, another what you think. So th th this is a what you think axis. The left, they think something, the right, they think something, the center thinks something. It's all what you think, right? So people are saying we need to move to the center, but they're, they're trying to say something else. They're not saying we need to, instead of being zealots about these positions, we need to be zealots about this position. That's not what they're saying. They're talking about then we need to be let, not zealous. We need to be open-minded uh, and we need to be uh, respectful of each other's opinions and allow each other to uh, respect of each other and, 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 and allow for disagreement and allow for compromise. And so to me, we need a second axis. And that second axis, I call it the psych ladder um, for you know, a lot of reasons. But basically, it's the how you think axis. And at the top of it, across the, across the spectrum, You've got thinkers that are open to disagreement, that are not religious about their ideas, that are that are searching for truth. They're deeply motivated by truth. They have a humility. They know they're not they, they're, they're wrong about a bunch of stuff. They are searching for truth. They're down to change their mind along the way. Um, they're fun to argue with because they'll tell you when they disagree and they'll also maybe change their mind if you make a really good point. Right. So that's a certain certain way of thinking and that extends to right i i know people across i know people on the far right i guess the far right uh the center the far left all the across there that are like this and they're passionate about their reviews but they will there's nothing you can say that's going to ruin your friendship they're just going to be like okay no i'll tell you why you're wrong and you get heated and it's fun though it's heated in a fun way no one's friendships at stake no one whatever or if you say or or, or you know those those people are never going to try to cancel anyone they're just going to be like no Great, say it, say it loud, and I'm going to say something just as loud to show everyone why you're wrong, which is what the marketplace of ideas is supposed to be. 
you can say something, but your idea might get torn apart. And if it's and, and when you say something into that to an open marketplace, it's naked out there. And if your idea is getting a lot of attention and it's not good and it has flaws, it's going to be exposed so quickly. Um, so down at the bottom, as you move down, you get to uh, towards the people who are I think totally differently. They are religious about their ideas. Their ideas are their identity. So they are their ideas, meaning they're not changing their mind because they're not that that's that's like, you know, committing identity suicide for them. Um, these are people who are impossible to argue with. They're a brick wall. They have their confirmation bias in their head is assuring that, no, that they will never change their mind. They're in denial about anything that, that proves them wrong. They're anti-science always. They're not searching for truth deep down. They might say they are, they might think they are, but deep down their motivation is to confirm what they already believe. And that's the articles they read and they look for confirmation and they just want to continue. It feels so good to, to be told they're right, they're right, they're right. They don't care whether uh, deep down, they don't, you know, whether they are right or not, they just want to feel right. And they, um, they, they don't have any humility. They are positive they're right. Uh, and they, if they have enough power, they will actually try to make sure no one disagrees with them openly, whether it's to them or out in public. Someone, you know, instead of saying, I'm not going to listen to that podcast because I don't like what they're saying, they're going to go even further and say, I don't want anyone allowed to listen to that podcast. So I'm going to try to shut that podcast down. But can canceling is so bad because it's not, it's, it's not just a choice for you. It's a choice for everyone. Um, mm -hmm. It's a choice that, you know, and so well, I and, think and this is on your psych ladder. Are you, are you explicitly or implicitly using devel adult developmental theory like Bob Keegan, Jane Levenger, Claire Graves, Spiral Dynamics, any of those kind of models? Or is this just no, intuitively what you've been unpacking? It's in it's intuitive. Um, it's based on, I think there's kind of a primitive mind and a higher mind. And this is like an old concept of two minds. And it's been, you know, lots of different controversial views on it. I, I just think of it as, as primitive mind is just kind of what humans are programmed to do. We're programmed to, to be religious about our ideas and to group think and to agree with our tribe, not to find truth, but to be a, a strong unit that all agrees. And we hate the people that disagree. Right? This is what this makes sense a long time ago. Uh, then there's this higher mind that um, can say, well, that doesn't actually make sense. And let's like be better than that. And let's look for truth. And like, let's not, uh, and it doesn't, it's not thinking like that. It's thinking much more kind of in real time, looking at the real world around it and being rational based on that world versus the primitive mind doesn't, can't see the real world. It's just a, it's a software program. And so to me, the, the people low on the ladder, they've, we, we all can do it. It's not, you know, it's not that those people, we all are low on the ladder sometimes. The people lower in the ladder are, they've fallen prey to their primitive mind thinking. They're, they're, they're thinking like the, with their software and not you know, more, more consciously. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so people high up on the ladder, they, they, that primitive instinct to confirm what you believe is being overridden. Just like you can override the desire to eat Skittles. Uh, you mm -hmm. can override- Sometimes. You can override a lot. Yeah, so, sometimes that's, it's, it's a struggle. I, call, I think of it as a tug of war in your head. And that for me, I procrastinate constantly. You know, This is my tug of war going the wrong way. Um, but when we're thinking like a zealot, um, we are—we're losing that tug of war in our in our intellect. Um, and, and, and Brett Weinstein, our, our mutual friend, I think he—I don't know if you've seen his short little talk on that. But he's like, look, you know, be super careful if we revert back to identity politics, because once you do that, you're you're un, unwinding ten thousand years of incredibly rare, fragile, elective broad group cooperation. That the, the idea that all men and women are created equal and entitled to the same rights is not genetically encoded. Right, that is a notion, and it's an incredibly delicate notion. And the moment you throw the flag on the play of saying you're this color or that color or this gender or that color or this class or that class, and we, you know, or this faith or that faith, the moment you do that, you're now triggering what you're describing as the lower animal energies. And even if you think it is in service of progressivism, you're actually going to actually fire up and and magnetize 
the opposition, which ends up being ethnocentric death squads. You know, not not to be overly dramatic. Yeah, well, be super careful. It's a little like um, it's kind of like uh, you know, humanity's been on a diet, a really like strict diet, and it's like we're letting ourselves go. You know, and it's like, oh, we've like fallen off the wagon and we're like eating like, you know, eating like shit again, which is like a little what Brett's saying. It's like, uh -huh. um, we don't realize that we've been on a very strict diet. And if we let that go, we will fall back to what we always do, which is, uh, you know, makes, you know, small religious groups that kill each other and uh, hate each other and think that, you know, dehumanize each other and um, and uh, don't look for truth anymore and don't cooperate. And, 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 you know, this is kind of what I was saying before, you know, you have the echo chambers which is what the people on the bottom form and the idea labs, which is what the people on the top form. And it, free speech society isn't saying everyone has to be on the top. It's saying it's legal to be on the top. No government can stop people from being on the top and having open discussion. And the people on the bottom can't use violence to stop the people on the top, which is almost how it always happens. That people on the top, that, that fragile- They get lined up and shot, right? That's the first yeah, thing that it, happens. And, right? and you don't shoot all of them. You shoot five of them and everyone stops talking, right? So yeah. that, that's what happens. now. The reason I'm so concerned about something like you know cancel culture or whatever you want to call it, when you when you when you give that inch on free speech, because it sounds so good. Oh, we're just going to stop hate speech. That that really powerful group starts uh, to infringe on more and more of a, you know culturally. Say you're going to be punished culturally for you know this and this and this because we're all now all of this is counts as, as hate speech. What happens is you dismantle the top, and the top is where, as I said, that's where we're collectively smarter than the average human. At the bottom, we're collectively dumber than the average human. And, when, and remember, we're on this boat. Yes, wisdom of crowds versus towards, murderous mobs, right? Yeah, yeah. And we're headed towards this good future or this bad future. And my point is the only thing that can get us to the good future on that boat is this collectively really smart giant we can form. Free speech is that giant's brain. So when you infringe on it, you are literally shutting down our ability to be collectively brilliant in a way that can get us to a good future. And you're... You're, you're making us into a collectively, you know, if all the people are just thinking these things in their head or in small groups, you're, the collective becomes very dumb suddenly, very, very dumb. And that's going to drive us right off a cliff, right on, right, right, right. To, seriously, our species with all this technology that's exploding, we have to have our wits about us, you know, and, and so th this is my, my concern. So when I see, I don't care who it is, it's not political. If, if the pro-lifers are doing it, if the pro-choices are doing it, if the social justice people are doing it, if the Trumpers are doing it, whatever, whoever is infringing on our ability to have, for, not the whole country, plenty of people will go to echo chambers, great. If it's infringing upon the people who want to be in the marketplace of ideas, it's, it's making that marketplace of ideas not a space for anyone, we have to stop it because it's, it's, in, it's an existential threat. That's how I am. Yeah, well, you, you just laid out really beautifully the level of the game and people being able to have, um, basically it's, it's strong opinions loosely held. Right, and that is actually literally the, that was the founding premise of, of Homegrown Humans, this podcast, which was how do we go from something like the New Atheist, where people were often kind of entrenched, there was sort of the straw man of superstitious old religion, and then the smart new people like Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris, you know, just kind of beating the living shit out of the straw men, you know, to, to the new Platonist of like people who are still using reason, ration, logic, evidence, but also have some connection beyond their own fixed position, maybe even some some lived experience of the mystery or, or the numinous or the sublime, something more that kind of just lets the game be a little bit more fun and creative. And, and one of the litmus actually for, you, for the found, founding of this program was Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson's debate, 
right, where they famously, you know, Sam was taking the rational materialist reductionist point of view quite strongly, and Jordan was taking the sort of Western archetypal Jungian, you know, Mr. Christian perspective, and they were just kind of talking past each other all night. And I think that to your point about your audience and viewers who's drawn to these kind of conversations, really, I think a meaningful chunk of the audience wasn't in that cage fight. They were both rooting for them to get beyond the antithesis to a synthesis. You know, like, come on, yeah. guys, there's a both end here. Like, we're all rooting for you guys to name this out loud so we can be along for that ride. And, you know, and then Sam, you know, Sam and I were exchanging a few emails during his dust up on the other side of the spectrum with Ezra Klein at Vox, right, where that went quite sideways. And I was like, Sam, you know, you're, you're sort of, you're, you're, you may be winning the war, but you're losing battles here, right? Because Ezra is quite polished in his nonviolent inclusive nonviolent communication inclusive language etc is actually coming across as more reasonable and, and most of your listeners watchers viewers aren't tracking the substrate that you're taking these mm -hmm. definitive stands on now um and i know that you know uh, i don't know when it was maybe last last year back in another time maybe a year a year ago right was you at um in la at that at our mutual friend summit series folks uh facilitating mm -hmm. a conversation with sam so i'm curious yeah. as to you bringing this ethos to that conversation, how'd that go? What was your experience? And, and were you guys able to find some, synth some synthesis and, and some common ground beyond the fixed position? Yeah, um, I mean, I've talked to Sam about this a few times. Um, we're, we're, pretty, we're pretty on the same page uh, <laughs> uh, about a lot of stuff here. I think he's, I, I think he's very um, clear-headed about this kind of topic, uh, personally. Um, and he's look, he's balancing this is there's no real perfect way to be out there talking about this right now. You're going to do some stuff that you that that that, that might hurt your um, ability to reach people in the future, no matter what you do, you know, you're going to you, no matter what position you do, you're going to kind of be betraying some other position. So it's, it's really, really hard. But that conversation I had with him, um, I, I was. Um, you know, we, we got we got kind of sidetracked and talking about psychedelics for a long time, which is uh, which is which was a lot of fun. We didn't really have a time to get uh, we didn't really have time to get into some of this stuff, but mm -hmm. um, but when I listen to some of these different things with Sam, I tend to feel like he's right. No, he he he's you know he reminds me a little of Elon Musk in that like they, they can obsessively obsessively get, get you know. Um, uh, if something is not accurate or something is not accurate about them or a point isn't, you know, being made, they, they will, they will really, they won't let it go. And I, I can, I understand because I'm kind of like that too. It's a perfectionist thing in some ways that I know sometimes just isn't that wise in how it comes off, like you said, but there's just, there actually, I think there's a ton of integrity and that, that and actually having a ton of integrity, a perfectionist level can actually be um, maybe a detriment if you go too, too perfectionist with it, because you, you will just, instead of just sometimes saying like, like, like just, you know, let this go or disagree to disagree or something, you know, it's like, no, you'll have to like make it clear that the specific thing that you were being accused of is not exactly correct. And that's actually not what you were. And it's, I don't know. On the other hand, I think that someone like Sam is popular because he actually does have a lot of people who listen mm -hmm. hard. They're pretty clear headed and they yeah. appreciate that. They, they see like someone like you, you, you just defined Sam's thing with Ezra and you, you knew that he was making some good points, but you were talking about how he might be perceived to others. But I think a lot of his, listeners are like you so they also see what you see and even if they think uh, I, even if they think you know he's, he's going too far he's he's being too combative they know he's well-intentioned and they know he's making good points mm -hmm. and i think that's all sam really cares about is that the people the really smart clear-headed high integrity kind of listeners of him of his um 
that they get that they that they that they get what he's trying to say, and they understand what they am. Uh-huh. I think that's a reasonable stance. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, you're not you're not going to become you're not going to become Carl Sagan level that way. You're not going to become a worldwide you know, um, um, kind of like mythic kind of thinker that you know modern you know intellectual um, god. Um, if you're if you're if you're like, like that, you're gonna oh you're gonna have too many enemies. You're gonna you're gonna you know, but you can become a pretty you know Sam has a pretty huge following. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, he's chosen to, um, to dig really hard into that, that group rather mm-hmm. than try to please everybody, mm-hmm. um, which yeah. I think is, you know, we need people like that. So, well, I mean, and, you know, it's interesting when you, you mentioned Carl Sagan, you meant, you mentioned, um, even your own path from deep dive, big thing stuff into something more political and volatile. Uh, you've, you know, tipped your hat. To, I mean, obviously Brett Weinstein has been through the meat grinder of the culture wars as well, even though as an evolutionary biologist, you would think he would be somewhat removed. Yuval Harari has definitely gone out of his lane of medieval military history, you know, into broad scope, you know, history of civilizations and now into increasing forward looking and politically charged uh, topics himself. So there seems to be this inexorable pull to your point about the, the waterfall, the pending waterfall of anybody who believes that they are seeing things unfolding uh, in real time to start taking stands. And if it means getting out of your safe lane, you know, if it means putting your head on the chopping block and knowing you're going to get clipped from, I mean, I'm always baffled by, you articulate an argument and I always expect the, the folks holding the antithetical argument to the ones you're defending against. And as often as not these days, you're actually getting clipped by the people you thought were behind you and on the same side. Like the, like the, the, the folks on the opposite team may or may not even come across your stuff or they may not choose to go deeply enough or they just take you as the healthy opposition, whatever. It's, it's, it's the kneecapping and the shivs on the ribs from what you thought was on you know, your, your, the, the good, the true and the beautiful team um, that is baffling. So you just mentioned this is, I'd love to kind of wrap this up big picture. Let's, let's just take a wait, but why, right? So you mentioned that yours and Sam's conversation got sidetracked but you know it was also sam quite publicly after the fact you know described that he had undergone some relatively high dosage psilocybin experience last year that i don't think it was quite the terence mckenna five grams in silent darkness but i think it was at least three um maybe a bit more and at least for some period and maybe persistently since uh his perspectives have felt a little softer and a little bit more um inclusive versus maybe some of the pitched battles he was getting entrenched in. Um, you've covered the ground. You've got Fermi's paradox. <laughs> you know, what, what is intelligence in the universe? You've got the rise of AI. You've got the, the story of us and how do we go from impulsive, genetically programmed monkeys to the better angels of our nature, right? So what is your sense of, of where are we going? and what's possible for humanity. So my favorite thing to write about is what's possible, right? I, I, I'm a really like optimistic guy. I, um, I get, I'm excitable about stuff. I'm not typically, you know, uh, focusing on what sucks or what could go wrong. That's just not my nature. Um, so my nature is to discuss the big, you know, the stuff I, as I said, sometimes I'm talking about procrastination or relationships. That's a different kind of category. But what, one of the things I really love getting into is, just, you know, what, what is reality here? What, you know, like the Fermi paradox is like, that's such a fundamental question. Are we one of billions of this? Are we, 
are we legit potentially the only example? Are we some unbelievable freak miracle that happened? That's a really kind of important thing for us to figure out. I mean, if we can, it, either way, it's just so fun to talk about. <laughs> um, I love talking about AI, but you know, the existential part is scary. But I, what I really like talking about is what could AI do that's great? What you know, what could genetic engineering do that's great? Life extension. Um, you know, what, what could nanotech do? How could we cure all these things? Cancer, poverty. You know, fix climate change. You know, I'm, I, that's how I like to think, right? So I see kind of this. Look, if you took someone from 2,000 years ago. Uh, or even 300 years ago, and you brought them to a modern day city, and you put them in a small, you know, middle class apartment, and you just let them, they would say, I, this is utopia. I'm in heaven. You know, they, they had never seen they, the, the, the technology, the, 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 um, the, the life expectancy, it's just like, every, one thing after another would just be like, they, they would be in this magical world where everything, all these other problems are solved and everything easy, right? So I think that something like utopia, I don't, you know, I don't, I, I, I think that it's all relative. Our, our reality is, is someone else's utopia from the past. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a future that would seem like genuine utopia to us. If we went there, we'd say, oh my God, people don't die involuntarily anymore. Oh my God, there's no chronic pain anymore. Oh my God, no one loses, loses loved ones anymore. No one is in poverty uh, in the world. Everyone has enough, you know, has, has enough. I mean, stuff like this that to us seems like impossible. It's magic. It's not. Enough technology just seems like magic. So I'm picturing this world, and I'm so excited about it. And I think maybe, maybe the people alive today, we might be, we, it, it's happening fast enough, like we might get there. And if we get there, like we could be there for a long time, right? So crazy stuff, right? This is my favorite topic. And yet, on the way there, I see it ahead, you know? And then I see there's somewhere, there's this foggy thing going on here, and I know there's a waterfall. And it makes me so stressed out. I'm like, oh my God, we cannot go off this waterfall right now. We've gotta get there. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm st I stopped all that stuff, what I was writing about, to take a pause to say, look, none of the, the, the limiting factor on everything else I could write about is, this problem, which is that our society is drifting downwards, we're falling off the wagon at a, the worst time when technology is exploding. You know, you're going to bad guys in the world. They're going to have way more power soon. You know, with technology that's it's coming. Um, you know, we need to we need to be wise about what what's the right way to handle genetic engineering. You know, and we can't have that become politicized, uh, and, and which loses all. There's no thinking anymore. There's two dumb giants now arguing. There's there's no more higher intelligence brain. So. I think I, that there, you know, I don't want to, I don't look, it's not fun for me to write controversial stuff and have haters in my comment section. And now I have haters. Like I never, I never had, I had no haters before really like, right around procrastination in astronomy. Like there's not, there's no haters there. Um, so it's not fun. It's not my, I don't, I actually don't find it that interesting. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but it's a little like when I talk to my friends about relationships, you know, it's the same thing. This is the stuff I talk to my friends about is we try to say, you know, what is the real problem? And I said, I need to go public with this and just try to at least do my part to have, because it's, you know, if I can get my corner of the internet that, you know, those people, at least some of them receptive and they can have a better language to talk about this and they can be more convincing in their arguments because the framework that, that they've gotten from this series in their own head, this framework that I've spent so long developing, if I can put that in people's heads and that can help them think clearly and see what's going on more clearly and, and, and articulate uh, um, their, their ideas better, um, then 
then, then that, that, that's, that's the highest impact I can make right now for about this fork. I would love to not, I'd love to feel like we're not headed towards the bad fork anymore and just never. So I just wanted to do it once. I probably will not write about this stuff again. Uh, getting in there, kind of saying it once. It's a framework I think can be used again and again and again. This vertical axis, which then I, you know, is, I think people could, that framework is gonna, you know, I don't think it's just re relevant to this time. So I think that framework I put it out there, and now I can go back and write about. My next, I'm gonna write another book after this, and it's gonna be the the other kind of books, I mean, the fun book about the utopia. And it's gonna, I'm gonna, I can't, and that the little kid in me is so excited, <laughs> and so bored by writing about politics and stuff, but I, I have to. And, and the thing is, you know, the people on the bottom of the ladder who are religious, they will see me as I'm, oh, I have an agenda, political agenda. I really, I'm, I'm, I'm really a conservative doing this, or I'm, I'm a progressive that's, that's, a, that's just trying to, you know, say orange man bad in different words, you know, whatever, whatever I'll get. And it's just like, that's just not what I'm doing. I, I truly think that like this, the, the particular political squabbles pale in comparison to the cliff we might go off. That's, yeah. it's a little like um, the White Walkers. You know, it's like you can we can squabble all the political things. I see them like squabbles in King's Landing. Uh -huh. It's like no, 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 none of this matters if the White Walkers get over that wall. So that's how I feel. I'm just like, is, you can accuse me of being like, oh, you really want the throne? I'm like, no, no, I'm not fighting in this King's Landing. I just want to talk about the White Walkers. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's why. And that's why infringement <laughs> on free speech is is the White Walkers to me. Yeah, 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 yeah or or at least on the, the ultimate battle among the kingdoms and, and the final distraction. It, it feels like what you're describing is, and, and I, I've been personally experiencing this for the last 18 to 24 months as well, but there's the sort of coming alive arc of like expansion of possibility, you know, curiosity, growth, you know, the sort of that beautiful, the beautiful meadow you were describing, right? There's a future we could all make it to. Um, both individually in our lives, fulfillment, connection, learning, growth, but also civilizationally. And then there's the staying alive arc. And that's about the dwindling options and choices. And we're sort of, you know, to, to use your kind of, you know, drawings, it's like there's these two intersecting arcs and we're right at that crossroads right now, torn yeah. between coming alive and staying alive. And, and it, you know, there's that E.B. White, the guy who wrote um, Charlotte's Web. You know, he said, he said, every morning I wake up torn between my desire to, uh, savor the world and save it, and 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 that makes it hard to plan my days, you know. Mm. But but then I realized that uh, in fact the savoring must come first, because if I if there wasn't the will to savor, there would be nothing left to save. Yeah, I think a lot of people focus on the existential threat um, when they write about it. You know, how bad could AI get, or how bad could a political war, a civil war get? And that yes, that's scary. That's basically trying to motivate with fear. And I think that we should do a little more. This is what I want to write in this next, you know, next, I, I think we should do a little more of like, what, get everyone really, really yearning for that world we could have. Yeah. Maybe 30, maybe 30 years from now, things, technology is moving real quickly. Like it could be 20, 30, 40 years from now. That's there. It's this thing. We can see it over the horizon. There's a bright area over this horizon that we could get, we could uh, go to. Get people so excited about that. They, they, it makes their heart ache to think that, that, that we're going to fall off and we're never going to get there. That's a little bit how I see it. So it's like, um, that's what, you know, that's what makes me emotional is not like, oh, we might all die. It's like, well, that was the plan anyway. You know, it's, a, it's like, no, it's like we, we might get, there's this thing we could have and it's so, we're so close. Think about it. Ever since the, you know, agricultural revolution, you know, we've been, the humanity without realizing has been working towards this meadow, I think. And it's like, man, we're so close. And it's like, this is when you realize that like, when I think about like Christianity, I'm like, I have more respect for it than I used to. Cause I'm just like heaven and hell, like, yes, you, you know, if it's, you're taking it literally, then that to me is silly at least, but, um, but metaphorically, 
you know, it's I'm like, you know, it, 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 I do think that our current world would seem like heaven to someone from 10,000 BC. Yeah. Um, and so I think that heaven is real is, is in, in terms of uh, our expectations. I think there is a heaven, something that would seem like heaven to us that we can genuinely get to. And I think that a world that seems like hell is very possible too. Um, you know, we take it when you only grew up in good times, it's really hard to imagine that you could live in really, 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 really bad times, but you could, you know, every time there's been bad times and people who went into it didn't think it was possible. So, you know, it's that combo. It's pretty good incentive right there, but the, 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 the possibility of losing heaven and the, the scariness of hell. So, yeah. Oh. Well, Tim, I mean, you know, and thank you. Thank you for, signposting the way you know to that adjacent possible uh you know one one hilarious and and informative stick figure at a time i i yeah appreciate uh having me on to, to rant for a little while <laughs> Hell yeah. and actually i mean you, you mentioned two books in the work do you have working titles for them so people can track them? no uh the, the second book is is a germ at the moment uh it, it's uh it's just something i want to do so we'll huh. see. I've finished this one first. This one I have to get out there and then get off to this toxic topic and move on to fun, exciting things um, yeah. again. And nice. so, yeah, dude, I mean, same thing, same thing. I mean, I was in the midst of writing the sequel to Stealing Fire, which is the book I wrote a few years ago. It's about to come out now. And just somewhere last summer, I had to just stop and write this thing called Born Again Patriots, which was this centrist position of like, hey, why is the, you know, why is the left conceded all the good value words like honor, duty, courage, sacrifice? patriotism why have they just conceded those to the alt-right like like those are the rootsy ones and you've got intersectionality totally. and privilege and like shitty complex non-rallying ones like divisive yeah, yeah 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 like let's get back to the double down on the infinite game you know this and is, the, and the this difference is a, patriotism I, I, and nationalism it's a john height thing you know common humanity mm -hmm. activism versus common enemy yeah and it's like the common enemy activism when it succeeds, it kills a ton of people. That's what it does. It's it's primitive. It's primitive minded thinking. Common humanity activism. Look at every sentence out of Martin Luther King's mouth, basically, and Mandela and you know JFK and these great. They're great leaders. They're, these are mythic figures for a reason because they were great. You know, there's not, there's not really many mythic figures I, I can think of who are just revered universally, who were common enemy activists who were saying these are the bad. guys. They were all saying that the line between good and evil cuts between all, you know, and cuts through every human, and um, and that you know they, they they spoke with they spoke about love basically in different words, and yeah, um, that, that, that resonates. You know, it's that I mean, even Gandhi's even formulation of that he didn't even like the wording nonviolence because it included the word violence. He's like, I wish there was something better. So he yeah. had Satyagraha, and then you know King took it took it into soul force, but like that, better angels of our nature kind of jam. Yeah, there's a activist um uh again i'm gonna forget her name but she said uh, i think she was the provost at yale for a while but she said um uh when my enemies try to draw a circle to exclude me i'll draw a bigger circle to include them and i'm like right there like who's not gonna follow her anywhere right who's not gonna follow her who is not you know and it makes everyone want to hug and forgive when you just hear that it's obviously like that's the kind you of activism do, 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 we do. need and then you, you had that little vignette in your blue. I don't know. I don't know what your blue boxes are, but I read one of them, which was your plane plane ride with the bitchy woman beside you. Right. That that motion. Right. Of how, how you went from antagonism to inclusion just because one person played the vulnerability card. Because all of a sudden I was like, oh, it's just a poof of the delusion. And I'm like, oh, she's a full human being. <laughs>
I was being so mean to a full human being. Why would I do that? You know, and, and it, it made you realize that I was in this delusion before where she was not a human. I hated uh-huh. her. Being a random woman, I don't know, with family and, and like fears and hopes and dreams. Why would I hate this? It makes no sense. And all it takes is one thing. It's, it's the, the primitive mind switches for me. It's like I went up, my psyche went up the psych ladder in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, what's beautiful, all- right? I mean, on, in the level of the story, you were the asshat. And she played the vulnerability card, but in you remembering and drawing that insight and then sharing it with hundreds of thousands more people, you played the vulnerability card and then leveraged her insight for a huge ripple effect. I hope. <laughs> well, truly, like, like, I mean, I mean, you, I, I'm always cynical about Instagram memes and, you know, like, like, like kindness multiplies, blah, 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 random acts of kindness and, you know, that, those sort of things. But you're like, no, that, that's a super simple example where that woman reconnecting with her humanity, sharing it with you, and then unbeknownst to her, you happen to have an audience to be able to, and then you also chose, you weren't just like, oh, that bitch, and moved on with your day, you noticed it, and then you instantiated it into an artifact, you know, and then that ripple effect, absolutely, I mean, it's landing for me, you know, it landed for me today, right? So, so that, that is neat. Now, that is some non-linear shit when people do source from soul force. Yeah, that's why these leaders are so mythic because they, the ripple effects of their words, they actually like lift giant societies for decades on end up on the psych ladder a bit. You know, it's, it's a huge deal. And likewise, a, le- a leader like Hitler, you know, Mao, these common enemy leaders, they bring when they, 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 they ripple effect for a long time, bringing a common enemy mindset into people, whether it's the people who hate them or the people who love them. So. Um, you know, we got to have this vertical axis in our heads, I think, and then we can have somewhere, you know, where to, you know, where to point our efforts then. Yeah. Well, dude, if if you're open to it, I'd love to, uh, send you a galley, uh, of the book that I'm just finishing right now. It's with, it's with HarperCollins. Um, and it basically is the attempt is, is for it to be basically the whole thesis of the book is what would happen if IDEO attempted to design a resilient culture going forward. So it's saying like meaning 1.0 organized religion collapsed and we and that's giving us fundamentalism, meaning 2.0 neoliberalism has collapsed and that's giving us nihilism. And how do we reconstruct the middle using design thinking principles of like neuroanthropology? So that sounds fantastic. I'd love to read it. Thank you. Oh, no, dude. I mean, I mean, I mean, I was so stoked. I mean, I'm, I was I was geeking on all the fun things you have always talked about, but the fact that you were also just, you know, falling on the sword of the socio-political as well. Um, yeah. Noticing how many folks we're tracking that are, you know, friends, colleagues, other other guiding lights. I mean, we're definitely playing in the same space and I'm super psyched that we got to connect, man. Totally, me too. All right, man. Well, have a great weekend. All right. See you later. Cheers. Bye. This episode of Collective Insights was hosted by Jamie Wheel and produced by Jacqueline Loera. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. 
Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.